0: Welcome into to another live edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. It was a great weekend in Cincinnati. Bengals get it done. Xavier gets it done. Xavier gets it done after being down by 17 points at halftime. Paul Frishner, Rick Roaring with you. Uh, before we get into this episode a little bit more, I do want to again make sure I tell everybody listening that if you're watching on Twitter, if you go to YouTube or Facebook, Uh, You can see it right there at the bottom. Oh, there we go, Rick. You can see it right there at the bottom along the little uh, ESPN ticker at the bottom. Uh, If you're watching, you can put live questions in. We'll get to your live questions. If you're listening to this in the car or at your desk tomorrow, uh, we'll make sure that we read all the questions off just so you know what we're answering or what we're talking about. But uh, Rick, it was quite a weekend, and we're going to spend... 99% of this talking about the, uh, the musketeers. I think the Bengals will probably come up at some point, but, uh, Xavier down by 17 at the half gets it done. So let's give you a little, little rankings update, a little state of the union for Xavier Xavier right now, uh, 21st in the AP poll. They're 23rd in Ken Palm. They're 20th in the net. As of right now, Xavier has four quad one wins, uh, Two of those four quad one wins for Xavier are like right on the cusp. Uh, The Creighton game yesterday, Creighton right now is 73rd. If that drops below 75, that's not quad one anymore. Oklahoma State's given Xavier a little bit more of a cushion there at 59. Uh, The Cowboys were kind of teetering right around that mark, but if you're watching right now, you can see it on the screen. Um, Creighton, like I said, they're at 73, so that's another quad one win. Again, Xavier all of last year only finished with three, so they have one more than they had all last season right now. And all of their losses are quad one losses, too, which I think is really significant for this team. 5-0 and o in quad two, two and 2-0 in quad three, and 4-0 and in quad four. That speaks to something on Selection Sunday, which, by the way, is less than six weeks away. And if you're watching, you see Bracket Matrix. was updated three days ago, and Xavier uh, right now – is the last five seed on the s curve but they are a five seed uh that's the state of the union and rick a lot to talk about from the creighton game let's get right into it xavier trails by 17 they come back to win maybe the biggest example of a jekyll and hyde from this team that we've seen to play as poorly as they did in the first 20 and as perfectly as they did in the last 20 and they get it done in omaha
1: Yeah, it felt like this is how it's been building for what four or five games now. They found themselves trailing at the halftime of each game, sometimes by big margins, and then they have a great second half and they come back and win. This was the extreme of that. I mean, that first half, they were as bad as you can possibly be offensively. And in the second half, they were incredible. I mean, it felt like everything was going right for them. And uh, obviously, there's a lot to get into with that. But in some ways, it feels like, we're talking about a lot of the same themes and the the same style of play from this team over and over again. But, uh, you know, feel free to take it wherever you go and uh, in terms of what you want to hit on. And obviously we can take questions from anybody who wants to jump in the chat on Facebook or YouTube.
0: Rick, did anything really stand out to you between the first half and the second half? I know that's probably going to be at the top of most people's minds. Was there anything schematically that you felt like, oh, man, they just did this differently? Was there anything that jumped out to you off the page other than just flipping the switch and hitting shots?
1: Well, I think it was kind of funny because and I asked Travis about this after the game. You can see his answer in the post-game press conference, which I thought was a pretty good one. It was basically the exact opposite from the first game against Creighton. If you go back to that first game against Creighton, we talked about, and I wrote about how they essentially tried to pick and pop early. They tried to go with a smaller lineup occasionally, but their goal was to drag Ryan Kalkbrenner, Creighton's shot blocking rim protector center out of the lane and play more on the perimeter defensively. Well, Xavier's big guys didn't make shots from the outside. Kolkbrenner didn't really seem to pay much attention to him out there and didn't even really bother playing on the perimeter. And he just lingered in the lane and kept giving the team a bunch of issues um, in terms of trying to get shots off. And whether he was blocking them, he had four blocks in the first half of that first game, or he was just changing the shots and making them think about his presence being there. Xavier couldn't get anything accomplished from inside the arc in that game. So in the second half, They went to a different strategy where they used their big men to either seal Kalkbrenner with a a quick duck in post up, basically, or play underneath them. So they were in a dunker spot along the baseline, and he had to worry about them being available behind him as a potential finisher. And that seemed to occupy him enough, whether it was physically when they were sealing him or mentally when they were playing behind him, that he was less aggressive. Xavier was able to drive the lane. You think about Colby Jones and how he took over there in the middle of that second half in the first game against Creighton. He had those couple baskets in transition. He was driving against Arthur Kaluma and scoring and everything was great. So Xavier comes out in the first half of this game and they say, we're going to do what we did in the second half of that game. It worked so well. We're going to ground Calkbrenner. Brenner. We're going to try to seal and duck in on him. We're going to play underneath him, and we're going to have Colby Jones attack off the bounce. You saw Colby was really aggressive in that first half of play and, 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 Wasn't able to finish and Paul Scruggs wasn't able to finish and Zach Fremantle took 10 shots in the first half and only made three of them. And so it was just really a struggle, even though they were playing the the same style that worked in the second half of the first game against Creighton. So they get to halftime. And they make some adjustments and they had actually started doing this in the first half, some, but in the second half is where it really caught some momentum because they came out and they said, Well, we're gonna try to stretch Kalk Brenner away from the rim again. He's not guarding Nunji on the perimeter. Let's see if we can get Nunji going with some some open looks. And they run a set play to get Nunji a corner three on the first play, and he knocks it down. And then on the next play, Freeman will kick it out to him at the top of the key and he knocks it down again. And then Paul Scruggs hits a three and all of a sudden Xavier's just in business, right? And Paul Brenner can't guard them out on the perimeter in those pick and pop situations. And it opened everything up. They're able to drive all the way to the rim and finish a little bit more. Um, And that's really what I saw. That was the biggest thing is it was just the exact opposite. What worked in the second half of the first game didn't work at all in the first half of this game. And what didn't work in the first half of the first game was exactly what worked for him in the second half of this game. So uh, I think for the coaching staff's perspective, it was tough to figure out what to go with from a game plan perspective.
0: Yeah, One of the things that stood out to me, and we all had talked about how much, obviously, Nate Johnson had struggled in the last few games shooting the basketball. He got some open looks there in the second half and shots that he just wasn't making in the last couple of games where he's had wide open shots going back to the Marquette game, going back the last three or four games, he's had just wide open looks. If you look at the shots and the shot quality that Nate had in that game against Creighton, especially in the second half where he really caught fire, it wasn't anything exceptionally different than what he had been doing. In fact, that last one that he hit was a fadeaway contested three that he just buried. And those are shots that we had been seeing him hit the last year and a half that for the last four games he just wasn't hitting. God forbid somebody shooting top five nationally goes through a four game funk. Like this guy has gone out there and performed at the level that he's been performing at. And he's been, he was off. There's no denying how poorly he was shooting the last four games. But to go five for seven in this game and to not, in my mind, not really get anything different, the mechanics, nothing. It, and like I said, that last shot. That he made, I think it was the last shot that he made right from the top of the key was contested was basically off one leg fading away and that's the shot that we've kind of seen Nate take and at some points call forced and when he's hot and he's hitting them they're falling and he was able to do that on Saturday against Creighton.
1: Uh, I think that's a really good point everyone wants to make it about shot selection and he's taking too many bad shots and it's like Okay, some of them maybe when he's when he's in a shooting funk, you don't want him taking the tougher threes on on the spectrum of threes that he takes. But at the same time, overall, he's not taking different shots, and he hasn't been taking different shots from what he normally does. And the guy normally shoots about 45% or better from three-point range. So you're more than fine with him taking those shots. And to your point, The last three he made was sprinting to the top of the key, flying off the screen, catching and fading away with a guy still getting to contest a little bit. Two of the other threes I thought were pretty well contested. They were spot-up catch-and-shoots. And And his first three in the first half he dribbled into, so he shot it off the dribble. So he did a little bit of everything in this game. I don't think there's one aspect you can look at and say, oh, that's it for him. He needs to get back to only catch-and-shoot wide-open threes or something like that because that wasn't the case in this game. He just – Finally turned it around, and I know Adam Baum talked to him after the game, and uh, apparently he was really upset recently and having a hard time with his confidence after he was going through that funk uh, from from the outside. So it's amazing how reliant the Xavier team has seemingly become on Nate Johnson shooting well because coming into the season, you don't really think of him as like the focal point of the offense, even though we knew how well he could shoot. But we saw when he's not shooting the ball well, this offense is different. And all of a sudden, as soon as he was in the second half of that game, everything clicked back into place for Xavier.
0: Yeah. And we talked about it, Rick, on the last show last week, we were talking about how much if you want to look at one specific player that makes a difference as much as Nate Johnson does on this team, it is Nate Johnson because of his ability to shoot the basketball, stretch the floor and do everything you just mentioned. And when he's not hitting and when he's not drawing the guys to him that Xavier needs him to draw when he is just going out there and putting up shots where they haven't had any chance to go in and not because of bad shot selection, but just because whether it's a confidence issue, whether it's a mechanics issue, whatever it might be, the last four games, it was just the shots were going up and they weren't going in and everybody in the gym knew it until now, finally, at some point, you're going to break out of that. And you go into a week this week where you have Butler and DePaul at home and you hope that you carry that over because certainly the stretch of, Seton Hall, Connecticut, St. John's, Connecticut, coming up right after that, boom, 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 is going to be a stretch that really defines this season. And to get him back to where he is right now, uh, and hopefully not just one game, hopefully this isn't just one little spurt in the second half. Hopefully this is something that he carries and and gets back to where he was. That is a really, really important thing for this team over the next two and a half weeks. Yeah,
1: and I want to get more into that stretch of games coming up and what this game meant because I really, in a lot of ways, this was a swing game for this team in terms of how you felt about where things were at, where they're headed going over the next couple of weeks. Because if you're on a three-game losing streak, and even though you've got a couple of easier ones coming up at home in theory – you just don't feel good. You're like, uh, are you going to let one of those slip away potentially? And now you're really reeling and you've got some tough games that you have to win all of a sudden to play your way into the tournament and make sure you're still good. Uh, that's no longer the case. They're in a really good spot after winning this one on the road, getting another quad one road win. It just changes a whole lot about your perspective on this team. So we'll talk more about that, but I want to do hit on a, a couple more things in this game. And we talked about how important Nate Johnson has been to this team. Paul, how about Jack Nunji? I mean, <laughs> there there hasn't been a better transfer pickup. I know Xavier has had some really good ones, but in recent years, I mean, you'd have to go back to at least the Jordan Crawford era, I think, before we're talking about the type of impact that Jack Nunji has had on this team. He's been incredible.
0: Well, the easiest way to say it is that this team is nowhere near where they are in this season without him because there have been so many situations this season where Xavier has needed somebody to step up And he's been the one to do it, whether he's dominating in the post or whether he steps out and hits four threes like he did on Saturday.
1: But that's kind of a new thing, right? Because his shot, he was really struggling with from the outside. And we said when Xavier got him, like, look, we think this guy can shoot. The staff thinks he can shoot. Everyone who's ever been around him knows him to be a skilled offensive player that can shoot from the outside but his numbers are what his numbers are. And he hasn't shot well from the outside yet in college. And he got off to a really slow start here at Xavier. So, I mean, there is a certain point of this where you start wondering like, can this guy shoot from the outside or not in division one college basketball games? I know what he did in high school. I know what he did in AAU, but it's just not happening for him here in the big East, especially, or in the big 10. And all of a sudden now he is starting to hit shots. He's really come around recently. We can, look at the uh, percentages, he's up to 33.3%. So it's basically a wash at this point, but he really had to drag that number up because I think just a couple of weeks ago, he was in the teens in terms of a three-point percentage. So all of a sudden now you've got Jack Nungy, who's been a leader for this team, been a reason that they've won some big games already, and he's kept them in some games. All of a sudden he has this whole other aspect to his game where he can draw big men away from the paint and he can hit threes and he can stretch defenses. You can use them in pick and pop stuff. You can get more creative. I love the high low stuff they were doing with Nunji catching the ball after the pick and pops up top and then looking in to Zach Fremantle because Fremantle, now that he's starting to get, get it going again, If you put a four on him, and particularly an undersized four, like Creighton was using Arthur Kaluma at one point, who's a freshman forward, kind of more of a hybrid guy, Uh, but in today's basketball, a lot of teams will slide players like him down to the four, and he's going to be a very good defender. He already is pretty versatile and, and a tough kid. But he really wasn't a match for Zach down low. Zach got him two or three times in a row there in the second half, where Xavier went to some high-low stuff. And I really like that look, and that's something that all of a sudden is a whole nother wrinkle to this offense because Jack Nungy is now making shots from
0: the outside. And back in the beginning of the season when you and I were talking, it was, it was an idea where if Jack could hit one a game, if, if he could hit one three a game – and stretch the defense out a little bit bring bring that big you know the big man that's on him bring him out to the top of the key and maybe open up a little bit more down in the low post that would be great but for him to be able to consistently step out there and not get the eye roll and the groan from the crowd where you're thinking okay the big man's shooting another three and there's a consistent belief that the shot's going to go in more often than it isn't, especially right now. uh, It's, it's hard to put into words what kind of a difference that can make for the longevity of this team and this, and the ceiling of this team. I don't think it's dramatic to say that the ceiling of this team with him shooting the ball and playing like that is just dramatically, you know, uh, increased.
1: Yeah, we, we got to get to Zach Fremantle here because uh, we mentioned him and there's a couple questions coming in. Uh, I think a lot of people are noticing Zach Fremantle all of a sudden is starting to come along and it's been a struggle. He is It has been a slow way back for him after he returned from his stress fracture in his foot and having the surgery and trying to work his way back through conditioning and everything else. David asks, am I the only one that thinks Zach's defense has improved lately? Definitely not. I mean, I think everyone has, has seen the change. It went from Zach was just offering zero resistance at all. I mean, from a toughness perspective, from a physicality perspective, and then you get into the whole thing of he doesn't move his feet very well. He wasn't reacting very well or recognizing things very well. It was a disaster his first several games back on the defensive end of the court, and we've seen him struggle on that end going back to last year and teams were starting to exploit that some last year, but it was nothing like what Xavier was having to struggle through when he first came back this year. I mean, it was really, really bad. The last two, maybe three games, he's not perfect and he's never going to be there are going to be times where teams beat him on the defensive end because that's not his strength. He's not great laterally, but he is definitely being much more physical inside. Guys aren't just bullying him, going right through. I mean, think about to the Villanova game. Eric Dixon, a center who is never really used to play through on the offensive end, Villanova based their offense around just pounding it inside to him initially (laughs) and bullying Zach Freeman on the post because they knew Zach wouldn't stop him. That hasn't happened recently. No one is just going right after Zach Freeman all inside. And granted, it helps to put him out there with Nungi, so Nungi can guard the biggest guy on the floor in theory. But still, I mean, there's no doubt, David, that – Zach has really picked up his defense the last few games.
0: Yeah, we're getting a lot of good questions here. So we're going to get to all of that here as as the podcast goes on. But I think that's a great point, Rick. And it's something that I was thinking about immediately as the game was going along. You look at the point production from Zach uh, over the last few games Too offensively, you know, he has seven points against DePaul, seven points against Marquette, and then he has 12 against Providence on six of 11 from inside the arc. And then he has. Uh, 16 points against Creighton and I think just overall I think you know Michael here saying is Fremantle going to be fully in stride sooner than tournament time he's improving game by game I think it is abundantly obvious that Zach is improving as the game goes along and as these as these last few games have gone along especially and you see it feels like he, he has a little more confidence in the shot we've seen him over the course of his career, take a lot of those baseline runners and baseline jumpers. And you saw him on Saturday, try to get to the middle of the lane, get more of that hook type look from the middle of the lane and, and just get the ball toward the rim. And he, he was more efficient like that uh, over the weekend. And you know he's not, he's not scoring uh, 16 points on, you know, uh, five of 23 from the field with some free throws. Like, 7 of 16 from the field, uh, you can maybe live with the 0 for 2 from beyond the arc. But 7 for 14 from inside the arc for 16 points is right about where you need him. Um, So, or at least right now as as he continues to really get back to where we saw him in the first two years of his career. So I, I think it is very clear that he is taking huge strides in each game to get back to where, I think everybody uh, is used to him performing. No, I would agree with that. I think that he is going to get back to, I don't know if he'll be
1: exactly the same player that he was when he was at his best last year. I mean, he definitely found a rhythm on offense through a stretch of games. It was playing at a really high level, and that's why people voted the way they did in preseason, all-conference balloting and everything like that. Uh, There's a chance he never gets back to being that player, partially because this team doesn't need to rely on him the way they did a season ago so they may just not play through him in that same way he may not put up the same type of numbers but i do think he is starting to look a lot more like that guy he's way more active he's rebounding a little bit more again the defense has definitely gotten better he's playing with a little bit more of an edge and toughness and i think you definitely saw the offense come around in this last game particularly around the basket uh you know with, with zach I think he might need to eliminate some of the mid-range stuff. And actually, we can talk about the whole team doing that too because I think that's a key for this group. But he shoots a lot of tough shots in the mid-range, that like 6 to 12-foot range where yeah. it's just a low percentage shot for everyone in basketball for the most part. And I know that's kind of what he does, but he's, he's probably better off if he just gets closer to the rim, tries to score a little bit more often in the post or with a quick drive, you know, one or two dribble move. And then the occasional spot up three. I think he probably needs to. You know, he took a lot of shots in this last game. He'd probably be more efficient if he eliminated three or four of those mid-range ones.
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, Rick, if you want to get to, I'm looking down here at the uh, at the question list. Going back to uh, to Troy's question on the team sheet. Well, we'll um, let's
1: get let's get to that after we're done talking about the, oh, okay.
0: the game. Okay. That's what I was. We'll oh, talk oh, gotcha. About, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, okay.
1: I think, I think the last guy that we probably should hit on from an individual standpoint is Paul Scruggs because he has been talked about a lot recently. We talked about him a lot on the last show, and our overall point was yeah, this team isn't getting where they want to go without Paul Scruggs playing at his best or at least playing better than he had been and making better decisions. You saw that play out in this game. I mean, he was great, especially in the second half of this one. He was really good. Got off to a slow start again, just like everyone did from a standpoint of finishing off shots. But he had, what was it, no turnovers, one turnover? Let's go back to the, uh, the box the yeah, no, no turnovers. Yeah. Yeah. Ends up with eight assists, no turnovers. I mean, just a, a crazy, crazy uh, stat line there from Paul Scruggs. And he also leads the team with
0: 18 points. And, this and, is thir- why- and 13 of those 18 points were in the second half, too.
1: Yeah, this is why you're not just benching Paul Scruggs and turning the program over to Dwan Odom. I'm a big Dwan Odom guy. I think Dwan Odom is going to be a really good player for this team going forward. And I think he's earning some minutes, but he hasn't taken that job and ran with it when he's gotten his opportunity. He hasn't been great. He's been up and down as well. And you know what Paul Scruggs is capable of. Yeah, he's a little rough around the edges. Yes, at times you wish his decision-making would be better. Yes, he goes through some shooting slumps and isn't, a high-level shooter. But the dude fights. He's about all the right things. And he's a winner at the end of the day. I think that's what you're going to see this year. This is really his opportunity to prove that. The last two years just haven't gone the way that he obviously wanted to or the team wanted it to. And I think this is finally his opportunity to go out on the right path. And I just... You're not going to take that away from him. And I mean, if he was really really screwing up. It'd be one thing, but he's also making so many plays that no one else on this team seems either a capable of, or b willing to step up and make. And when he has games like this, it just goes to tell you that you got to stick with this guy and try to help him through some of these rough patches.
0: Well, you made a great point and it's not like we need to talk too much about it because you've done a lot of it already, but at the same time, it's worth saying that For everybody that has gotten frustrated with the way that Paul and Zach have played, you look at how they played then on Saturday. They combined for 34 of the team's 74 points. If you take them out of the equation, then you're starting over, and Paul and Zach don't have, you don't even give them an opportunity to go out and give them, get, to get from them what they've given you for years. And you know that water is eventually going to find its level. At this level of basketball, with the talent that those two guys have, water is eventually going to find its level. And it may be frustrating at points. There may be some head-scratching times in the games. But you got to ride with the guys that have gotten you there because you're not just going to start over a rebuild when you have the talent in those two guys that is on the team right now. And Zach and Paul then go out and get you 34 points uh, you know, on 14 of 31 from the field in that game on, on Saturday. And like I said, 13 of Paul's 18 points came in the second half and nine of Fremantles came in the second half. That's a little indicative of how the game went because barely anybody scored in the first half, but still when it came time for the game to matter, those two guys stepped up and and got it done.
1: Yeah. Uh, Clay. Asks, do you think Xavier's inconsistency in getting good shots and reliance on the three is due to a lack of guys that can beat a man off the dribble one on one? Seems like no way, except, seems like no one, I think, except Dwan is capable of forcing defensive rotations. Paul and Colby drive, but don't really get past people, but rather drive to finish on their man. Uh, I think this is a somewhat interesting point here by Clay. And it goes back to something I've talked about a little bit in past shows and podcasts that this team does not have a bona fide bucket getter. When we talk about who are you going to at the end of a game situation, or who is the guy to get them out of a slump when they're in one of those offensive funks, like they were in the first half of this Creighton game, who is going to be that guy? You don't know because it seems to be a different guy on different days and, uh, in different games. And to Clay's point here, I think that's kind of along the same lines. Um, I think Paul is capable of beating his man off the dribble. I think Colby is capable of beating his man off the dribble. I think Dwan is capable of beating his man off the dribble. But to his point, all of them have a little something that's holding them back from being like a take over the game and dominate by driving downhill type of guy. Paul's never really been that type of player, always been a little rough around the edges, uh, doesn't seem to finish it quite high enough of a level and doesn't have quite tight enough a handle to be like a breakdown guy. He's not super quick. He's got those big, broad shoulders. It seems like he struggles to fit through tight spaces and slice through a lane. And then with Colby, we really just haven't seen him get to that that point of his game yet where he's either confident enough or his skill is refined enough to do this on a consistent basis. I mean, going back to this Creighton game, He was really good in the first Creighton game. He was part of the reason that Xavier played so well in the second half and took over and easily won that game. All of a sudden in this Creighton game, they tried to go to him early, try to let him attack. He just wasn't able to finish off some of those shots, and then he kind of disappeared in the second half completely. So he just has to keep improving. And then Dwan has been inconsistent as well, especially from a finishing standpoint. When he's on and when he's knocking down that mid-range pull-up, He is really difficult, I think, for other teams to account for because they want to play off of him. But you're just giving him a wide open 15 footer at that point with the way they defend him. Uh, So it makes it harder for him to get all the way to the rim because people are going to play off of him for the most part. And he doesn't always finish all that well. But when he is doing those things, I think he is probably the, the best on the team at getting to the rim. So, Clay, I do think that is somewhat of a problem for this team and somewhat why they they struggle with consistency sometimes on offense but I think it kind of goes to that larger overall point of it doesn't necessarily have to be a guy that can blow your doors off and get to the rim every time Trayvon Blewett could take over a game for you and score points and bunches and get you out of one of those funks just by being Trayvon Blewett whether that was uh, isolating and a guy in the mid-range or running off some screens to shoot threes he was just that good of a scorer so To me, it's more about lacking that type of high-level go-to score than it is about having a guy that can just beat you one-on-one off the
0: balance. To me, though, Rick, it feels like Colby has the raw ability to be that guy or to be able to do that at some point in his career. We've seen flashes of it. We just haven't seen it consistently. We haven't seen him really be as aggressive consistently as we keep saying that we're going to hope to see him be.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a good point. He he could be more of one of those types of guys. I mean, he's not lightning quick, so he's not going to just blow your doors off with the first step, but his handles getting to the point where he's good enough. Um, and he's obviously in the lane, he's dangerous when he's playing with confidence and, and being aggressive. He has such good length and he can get to where he wants to go that if he gets to five, six feet in front of the rim, you feel pretty good about him taking those shots. But you know, that goes to another thing that I did want to talk about with this team in terms of the consistency, the lack of consistency, I should say, on offense. I wonder, because it feels very much like it's, it's a fine line between letting your guys play carefree and have freedom and have confidence within your offense. And this team relies a lot on ball movement, playing within their flow game, getting good, clean looks and everyone getting involved. So you want your guys to feel like they have freedom. You want them to feel like they have the green light to take open shots and and to take good shots and all of that type of thing. You want them to have confidence. But at the same time, it seems like this staff definitely errs on the side of giving their guys as much confidence, as much freedom as on, as possible, as opposed to restricting them. And when someone's in a funk or they, they haven't made any three-pointers for 10 straight games or whatever it is, taking away their freedom to... To take those shots when they're open, right? It seems like they're they prefer to err on the side of you no. Know, give them confidence, make them feel like they always have the green light, and that's fine because I I think it's it's a really slippery slope either way. It, there's not necessarily one right way to do this. But one thing that I do think within all of that that they may need to look into the numbers a little bit closer is what does Xavier always say defensively that they want to force their opponent to do? Shoot tough twos right? We always hear that. They want to try to take away shots at the rim. They want to contest threes, run them off the three-point line. They want them to shoot tough twos. You start looking at what this Xavier team does a lot on offense. They take an awful lot of tough twos. And you think about Zach Fremantle and Paul Scruggs and Colby Jones. How many times do you see, I mean, with Zach, it's a little bit different. It's more like face up and step back and, and guys playing off of him or what have you. But with Colby and Paul especially, how often do you see them get down to that six to eight foot range and then take a turnaround, step back, fade away, or try to shoot a tough sort of runner from that mid lane range. Late in the second half of this game, I thought part of the reason the offense worked better is because they were getting all the way to the rim. They weren't stopping trying to float floaters and runners from five to six feet. They weren't pulling up, getting to two feet and then spin around pivoting twice and fading away from eight feet. They were getting all the way to the rim and finishing at the basket. That's something I think they might be able to look into a little bit more going forward because I just think there's been too many shots from the mid-range. Not that it's a terrible shot, not that these guys can't make that shot, because I understand for Paul and for Colby and for Zach, it is a big part of their game. But you can't have all of them taking five mid-range shots and a half. And I think too often Xavier's having that going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think defensively, too, Rick, there's a lot of credit that these guys wrote on the defensive end for what happened in the second half against Creighton, too. They forced seven turnovers, and then offensively, they score 11 points off of those seven turnovers. They dominated uh, on the boards, 21 rebounds to Creighton's 12. So I I think when we're talking about all those things combined, and and especially what we saw in that second half, everything that you just mentioned, and, and then the defense, too, it contributes to of the product that you get where you're at the lowest of lows in the first 20 minutes, and then you're at the highest of highs, scoring 55 points in, in those final 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because, you know, you're, we're reading all this stuff about how much better of a coach Greg McDermott is than Travis Steele. <laughs> and I'm not here to argue with that. I mean, I, I think Greg McDermott's a good coach. I don't want to get into argument of, you know, who's better and why they're better and everything like that. It's just fascinating to me to think about the fact that if Xavier would have had two big first half leads on Creighton and blown them both times, what would Xavier fans be saying about Xavier's coach at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, Xavier fans all think Greg McDermott's such a great coach and so much better than Travis Steele, but Greg McDermott's team blew two big first half leads to Travis Steele's teams this year. And Travis Steele's teams were the ones making plays when it mattered. They were the ones making the hashtag adjustments in two different games at (laughs) halftime that led to a completely different second half. So it's just interesting to me how everyone talks about coaches and the way they look at their own team versus other teams. teams. Because if you were this far into your career, and I know people will say, hey, Greg McDermott doesn't have as good of a team as Travis Steele, doesn't have as experience of his team as Travis Steele does this year. Okay, that's fine. Let's play that game then. Would you be okay with Travis Steele having Greg McDermott's team and saying those things that they're not as good as Xavier when you're 10 plus years into your career at a school and you really haven't had many deep runs in the NCAA tournament? Like, what are we talking about? You know what I mean? Like, that's just, it's just (laughs) interesting how everyone looks at this coaching thing and how good other coaches are versus their own.
0: Well, yeah. And and then I said this a few weeks ago, but if you take a look at like the national narrative of Xavier versus the... Cincinnati narrative of Xavier where all the Xavier fans that are listening, every every single person listening right now is a dedicated fan who probably watches every minute of every game and knows everything about this team or close to it, right? And your microscope is on this team 24-7 and you get down on this team because you see slumps, you get high on this team because you see the second half against Creighton. But when you take a picture of this team from 30,000 feet and you look at you know what what some of the the national narratives about a Xavier team is right now what they are like there is a reason that multiple national outlets consistently through the season through ups and downs have you know Xavier appears on Dark Horse Final Four list Xavier appears on uh, you know teams that could surprise you in New Orleans teams that you know have uh, a a solid chance to get to the second weekend like take a step back and and look at Xavier and the potential of this team and there are are peaks and valleys and seasons and like we said last week it's understandable to be frustrated when you look at the last three seasons how maybe the last couple of weeks were starting to trend but from a large perspective from a national perspective and looking at some of these look look at look at Duke right I mean the ACC is terrible and even Duke has had their struggles with they couldn't beat Florida State the other day they've they've been close against a couple other teams that they should have blown out they're they're killing Notre Dame right now in South Bend but like look at look at some of these other teams Gonzaga who everybody thought was going to go undefeated to start the year you know like Baylor, they've struggled a little bit at times. Like, I'm not comparing Xavier to the top five teams in the country. What I'm saying is when you look at Xavier under a microscope the way that we all do, there is a little bit of calm from a national perspective to show the talent and opportunity this, this team has.
1: Well, it's it's exactly what we, we said last week, right? It doesn't make any sense to talk about this team with the baggage of the last two years attached to them. They, they haven't shown that they have had a great season. They've put together the type of resume you need to put together. They're where they're supposed to be. The problem is it's really hard to watch this group of players and this coaching staff and not tie the way the last yeah. two years have finished to them. especially when things start to go South and the frustration creeps in. So I completely get where the fans are coming from with that. But like we said, it, it's really difficult to do what we're doing and have an intelligent conversation and be <laughs> serious at all if you're going to go down that path and act like this team is really in a hole that they've got to dig themselves out of because I ain't granted if they lost this creighton game we might be talking a little bit differently because then you're three losses in a row it's like okay what's going to happen against butler and depaul at home are you going to even win those two games that you're supposed to win and then what's next because you've got you've got some road wins you need to pick up here in the big east all of a sudden but now you're sitting where you are at. Uh, what, what are you, uh, five and four in conference play? Is that yeah. right? Five and four in conference play, a chance to be seven and four after two very winnable home games. And you've got four quad one wins, another quad one road win added to your resume. Everything's looking really good. And, and that's probably a good time to get um, back to Troy's question here. Troy said, speaking of the team sheet, at this point, what is the most likely floor and ceiling from a tournament perspective? Is there a magic number of wins that you feel like this team is a lock?
0: Uh, if you want to pull up the Ken Palm schedule, I think we could probably take a look at that, and that way it's a little Wait. easier to uh, to look at the rest of the season. But let's or, or, this, so you have yeah, the quads that, next to it. Does that yeah, work? that yeah that works. Uh, yeah, so um, if you're looking at the rest of the season, you say what's what's a, a magic number of wins. I, I wouldn't necessarily say a magic number of wins, Rick. I would say not losing to Butler, DePaul, and Georgetown. And I'm not saying that you go. What would that be? Owen five against the others. Owen, you know, if you if you win one, two, uh, three, three more games, you don't lose to Butler, DePaul, or Georgetown. You're gonna beat St. John's one of the two times, uh, and then you pick up one against Seton Hall, maybe one against Connecticut, and then roll the ball out there against Providence in Rhode Island. Like I think it's avoiding the losses to Butler, DePaul, and Georgetown where you can feel really comfortable.
1: Georgetown, definitely. You you can't lose to Georgetown. Xavier's only going to have that one game at the Centau Center, we think. To, to play georgetown yeah. doesn't sound like that other one's going to be made up so yeah. in some respects that kind of sucks but actually where xavier's at right now i'm kind of with you i almost think the opportunity to go on the road and lose to a team like georgetown a quad four loss would be more damaging than picking up that win because it's like it's it's quad four win it doesn't really change your resume all that much other than putting another counting number in the win column which i think does matter to some extent
0: Well, that's what I was going to say. If that Georgetown win on the road is the difference between 19 and 20 wins, which for whatever reason is seemingly the magic number, then maybe you're having a little bit of a discussion about it. But I would like to think that this team can take care of those three games. And then even if you just split the other ones, which, you know, St. John's, that's a, that is a golden opportunity to pick up two wins, uh, I'm not discounting St. John's because they've certainly – look at – my goodness, look at what St. John's did to Seton Hall the other day in Walsh Gymnasium. That was the best they've played all season. Like St. John's, they've had peaks and valleys of their own, but Seton Hall, they've had their struggles. Are they going to be back to where they are? I think to Seton Hall's benefit, they're going to be probably more toward where they wanted to be at the beginning of the season by the time Xavier finally sees them here next week. Um, cause Seton Hall certainly had a, a rough go of it to this point, just with injuries and everything else. But it, I, I think just to really hone in on Troy's question here, Rick, between the, the magic number of this team, I, I would say, I guess to pin a number down, you're assuming you beat Butler, DePaul and, and Georgetown, you pick up two more in there five and you're feeling great.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that's the number to me. It's, it's fine. I mean, if you get to 20 wins with the resume that this team has, and I'm not sure it matters all that much how they come. I mean, you don't want to lose at home to Georgetown. Like we've said, you don't want a quad four yeah. home loss to end the season and put that thought in everyone's mind right before you get into conference tournament. So that wouldn't be good. But aside from that, I mean, you win Butler and DePaul here to get you to seven wins. I think you're really just trying to get to 10 conference wins at that point to feel good about the tournament. Now, Every you know, in terms of the ceiling, we can talk about, and, and you may expect more out of this team than just getting into the tournament. But I think if you get to ten wins in the Big East this year, which would mean this team wins twenty games overall at least, you're talking about a single digit seed. I don't think they're a ten or eleven seed in that scenario. I think they're probably a nine ish if we're if we're talking about. It. So, um, in terms of the ceiling, what well, I mean, you want to play this out win loss game. I think Butler and DePaul are both wins. Yeah. I think at Seton Hall, you probably take as a loss. Connecticut yeah. is very much a toss-up game. At home, I'm going to go win. I think Xavier's defense can keep this Connecticut team from scoring enough to the point that at home you get a win there. So now we're at three wins at that point. You've got St. John's at home back-to-back. Like to think that's another win. Obviously, it's a St. John's always seems to provide some matchup issues for this Xavier program and I don't know why that is it's because they play in transition so much and Xavier struggles to stop that or what but St. John's is never easy but let's say they win that you're at four wins now and then you've got at at UConn at Providence both of those are going to be tough games I would say yeah I don't think, you,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't think you're going to sign a win to either one of those um then you get Seton Hall at home another toss-up game you basically got Seton Hall at home, St. John's at St. John's, and Georgetown at home to end the season. Those final three games, you got to find a way to go one and two in those games at least, right? And I think oh, yeah. you feel like they should be two and one. So, I, I, yeah. I, think, I think that the ceiling probably doesn't go much better than like six or seven wins the rest of the way. I think five is the number you're looking for. And a floor, I mean, in this conference – Anything could happen in terms of hitting a losing streak. So you could lose any of these games. I don't think they lose more than, I think probably the other six or seven that way too, right? The, yeah. the ceiling is win six or seven. The floor is lose six or seven. The golden number is five.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that because I think, I think again, Butler, DePaul, Georgetown, those three, you, you chalk those up as wins, which leaves one, two, three, four, five, six, seven there in the middle. And you know if you if you go 2 and 5 in those then maybe you're you're going okay let's let's get things right going into new york and if you go 5 and 2 in those or 4 and 3 heck even 3 and 4 i don't think anybody maybe depending on how the sequencing of it plays out would necessarily cry and complain about it i i think it would just be i i think a lot of this too rick is going to depend you know, forget the number of wins, whether they get to five or not. I, you know, if they win their next five, if they if they go on a six game winning streak here and win their next five games, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen. I'm just throwing it out there. If that were to happen, that includes a win at Seton Hall and a win at home against Connecticut. And then you go 0 5 to close the season like that's going to leave a sour taste in everybody's mouth. I have no expectation of that happening. I don't think that is a reality in any way with this team, barring injuries or something catastrophic, but a lot of the, the floor and ceiling game with this team that we're playing right now is going to matter on the sequencing of how those wins and losses come, especially in those last three, which you made a great point about, which could be tricky. Seton Hall, St. John's, Georgetown, St. John's plays so fast Every, St. John's likes to turn you over a million times a game, and Seton Hall, like I said a minute ago, if they're peaking at the right time on February 26th, then you know you, you, maybe you're looking at a little bit of a, an awkward situation there at the end of the year, but as long as you get that win to really send you send you off to New York against Georgetown at home on senior night at Cintas and, and things are going in the right direction. I think that's going to make a lot of people feel good.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Adding to my question, Troy says the log jam of teams in the big East all around the same seed line. Could the final conference standings create a pecking order for the committee and will the lack of game in DC benefit X? Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about that lack of the Georgetown game, possibly being a good thing for Xavier and that, in this regard, it probably the same way um, with regards to the all around this, all the Big East teams all being around the same seed line right now. Yes. Um, I think the biggie standings will create a pecking order to some regards for that. But at the same time, these things always tend to play themselves out before we actually get to the end of the season, right? Like the resumes kind of bear themselves out because if you rise to the top in this conference, it means you probably won an extra, quad one or two you know quad one game on the road or two to get you into that position and it puts you in a much better perspective from a seeding standpoint so um yeah I, I Troy, it will help when you see the biggie standings at the end of the year decide for the committee who's going where to to an extent but that'll be the result of their resumes more than anything because your resume usually looks pretty good if you're towards the top of the conference yep all right um no, question from Steve here says, does the offense seem to run better in second half because it's in front of X bench and steel has more control of offensive sets. Um, steel has talked about this before. I know Adam brought it up in the post-game press conference after last game. It's a thing. I mean, it it helps to be on that end of the court where your, your coaches can call things out. I tend to think it's better defensively when you're on that end, where you can really call out all the actions that the other team's running. Uh, Because the coaches are so familiar. They've broken down all the film, watched the other team every play they've ran probably all season long. So they know everything that's coming. But for the players, you have to dumb that down in the one or two day lead up to the game when you're prepping. So you only give them a few things to watch for with scout team and everything like that. So during the game, the coaches are always listening for what's being called out or seeing a pattern on the court and saying, you know, watch the double screen come in here or watch the staggered, or it's going to be a flare to the corner or something like that. I think it helps more to be close to your bench on the defensive end than offense. Cause I mean, the offense, as you're bringing the ball up the court Steele just has to look at his point guard and go, Hey, we're running uh elbow this, or, you know, zipper that." it's, it's not, it's not that hard to get your play in, in a basketball game. Um, does it help some being on that end for the offense? Maybe. I mean, I think, you know, you do have a little bit more control in terms of wanting to change things on the fly, I guess, after you've brought the ball up already. But I think it's it's more advantageous for the defense, really.
0: Sure. Yep. Um,
1: do we have any more questions here that I didn't get to yet? I'm looking back through. Um, I kind of bounced around a little bit this time. Oh. A tougher.
0: Uh, I, did we get to the one about the uh, – has the player you thought would be the X factor at the beginning of the year? No, here oh, yeah. we go.
1: From Greg. He says, yep. has the player that you thought would be the X Factor at the beginning of the year changed based upon our season so far? I can't remember who we would have said the <laughs> X Factor was. Was it? I mean, because I thought Colby Jones had a chance to be the best player on the team, so I don't think we would have said him.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I read that question, too, and I was sitting here going, I can't remember who I said was. I mean, was it
1: Jack Nunji, maybe? I could have seen us saying that, thinking Jack Nunji was more of an X Factor at that time before the year started. Cause you're thinking Paul Scruggs and Zach yeah. Fremantle and Colby Jones are kind of going to be the main focus. Maybe we said Jack Nunji was an X factor and I mean, he's turned out to be like the best Great. player on the team. So <laughs> it's probably, that's probably unfair to call him an X factor now. So in that regard, I guess I would change it. Who, who would you say is the X factor down the stretch here? If this team's going to go on a big run here late, who do you think is the guy that might pop up and, and really make waves for him?
0: Well, if you're going to go off of what we talked about a little bit earlier with Nate Johnson and and the ability that he has to really go, for this team to go as Nate goes, I'm going to take a look at Adam Kunkel, too, because Adam seems to kind of feed off of, one, what Nate does, and two, what he does himself with getting hot, getting streaky, taking good Quality shots, and not just. There was one possession in the uh, in the Providence game happened right in front of where I was sitting at the stats table, where nothing was really happening, and the offense was a little stagnant on the possession. And Adam had the ball uh, on the wing, outside the three point line, and nothing really happened for about five or ten seconds. Nobody was really getting open, trying to do some off ball screens, cutting to the basket, and then he just shot the ball and. It didn't go in, and you're thinking, okay, it it was an open shot. It wasn't a terrible shot necessarily, but down the stretch of this season where you're looking for shooting, and hopefully Nate continues to shoot at the rate that he's shooting at right now off of the Creighton game. Hopefully the five for seven in the Creighton game is the Nate Johnson that we see going forward, and there's certainly enough stats to back up that that is who he's going to be. But if he goes through a stretch where maybe he's not 0 for 5 in each game, but he's 1 for 4 or he's 2 for 7 or whatever, Adam Kunkel can't be 0 for 5. He can't be 1 for 6, right? He's got to be able to find his shot and be a balance, if nothing else, for when the shots aren't falling for other people.
1: I think that's the the right answer. Adam Kunkel would have been exactly where I went with this one too. And even more so than Nate Johnson, Adam Kunkel has the ability to take over a game. you might say, well, I just watched Nate Johnson hit five threes in a game. That kind of took it over in the second half a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Certainly if you're going to hit five of them in a game, that's a big deal. But Adam is more of a playmaker overall off the dribble. He can make plays for his teammates. He can get to the rim. He can score in the mid range and he takes some crazy. I mean, he's got, you know, as much as everyone wanted to make the comparison coming in of him and JP Makira, and that's kind of annoying for obvious reasons because it's just two white guys that everyone wants to compare together. There are some similarities in terms of Adam will do some crazy things the same way JP would. He'll take some shots that you're like, why are you taking that shot? And it just might be the shot that downs Villanova in the second half. At, you know what I mean? Like that type of thing like JP had where it's no, no, no. Oh, I mean, this guy's got steel balls, you know, so I think Adam could definitely play that type of role for this team. If they if he gets hot and they start rolling down the stretch, you could definitely see him take it over late in some games or making some big clutch plays. I think that's a really good answer. The only other one I might think of here would be Dwan Odom. I think Dwan Odom has shown some flashes. He had those two games right before the holidays and that COVID pause. And he had an injury that held him back and kind of kept him from practicing during that break. And then since he's come back, he just hasn't quite had that same level of sharpness to his game. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if he gets that back at some point, I could see him taking a major step forward, but it's just tougher to fit him in based on what this team needs right now, because for the most part, if this team is playing well, then you think Paul Scruggs is probably playing pretty well at the point position and, you need more shooting on the floor more than you need another ball handler. So
0: yeah, for yeah. sure.
1: Uh, um, do we have any other questions that we need to get to here? If you guys have one, please ask them now. I think we're about done in terms of what we had to talk about.
0: Yeah. Uh One just came in, Rick. Have they figured out Dewan Odom's limitations on his drive? We talked about that a little bit, but you can go ahead.
1: Um, I'm not really sure what that means. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I think they have Michael. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Um anybody else got anything before we wrap it up here? I know I know some people are on the message board. I'm trying to look at that. They want us to talk about Andy Katz. I don't care what Andy Katz's poll has. <laughs> I've never cared what Andy Katz has said. Uh, I don't think he's very good.
0: He didn't uh, have him in his power 36, Rick. Come on. I know, but apparently he
1: hasn't for a while. So it's like, who cares? Why are we listening I, to Andy Katz? I didn't even know Andy Katz had a power 36. Like, this is come on. when I saw a post on the board today, it was all news to me. Um, what national rank would you guys give this team currently? It's kind of hard to do without looking at all the teams and seeing exactly where you'd place them. But I mean, I think they're probably a top 25 team certainly top 30 if you're going if they're not in the top 25 you're only keeping them out for one of a few teams so I mean they're definitely in the top 30.
0: well but they're not in the top 36 yeah <laughs> yeah um, I, anyway. I I think I think they're probably appropriately ranked especially when you look at the teams around them that uh, that Xavier has played and and the the more important ranking if you want to look at rankings, people love the rankings and i get it and and we talked about it on a podcast in the beginning of the season that and i and i think it's worth saying again it's important for a team like xavier to be ranked for like brand purposes when you look at espn and you see the number next to your name and and being ranked means that they show your highlights and they pop up on your phone the tickers everything like that but if you're looking at rankings that matter and you're looking at ones that are really going to affect your season. Look at bracket matrix. Check into that once a week because that's what's going to that's going to be the national consensus of guys that really know what they're talking about and that's what the entire season comes down to. Are you going to make the NCAA tournament or not? Is this team going to play meaningful basketball games after March 13th? And as of right now, 98 out of 98 people that do this for a living or do this and know what they're talking about and are on Bracket Matrix. Every single one of them has Xavier as a top five seed or at least averaging out to a top five seed. The highest seed that they have on there is a three and two different brackets have them as an eight, but mostly they're in there as a five or a six. A little ahead of UConn, two spots behind Providence. Like, I think this Xavier team is right ranked Right where they, right where they should be right now.
1: Yeah, that's about as much rankings talk as I can. I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I just, I don't even care. I don't look. Yeah. I, I do think the rankings matter to a certain extent from exposure standpoint, and if you get listed on ESPN scoreboards and on the bottom ticker and all, all that stuff, it does matter to a certain extent. But I don't care about it from my perspective. I don't, I don't really yeah. look at it at all. So I don't really have a lot of thoughts on it uh steve bolger says off topic that <laughs> kid at nku as a player is he a high major guy no steve you guys shut the hell up and you keep your grubby <laughs> paws off of sam Vincent. he's staying in highland heights and we're going to win multiple horizon league championships with them
0: man Not i watched ball. that i watched that game the other night because it was on valley sports ohio so i watched almost that whole game against uh, ipfw I made a comment to you before the season. So I, I've I've done Vincent's games since he was in high school at Highlands, doing the Gath games. Like he's been given buckets in high school forever, and I was just I, I saw him earlier in the season, but it is just remarkable how big he is. Yeah. Like compared to where he was in high school, I mean he's a he's a man. Yeah, he's
1: that's the thing from day one. Really, this off season when I watched their first practice, I was like. I've seen him before, like in person, but I didn't think this is how he would look next to other Division One basketball players as a freshman. I mean, yeah. just, he's he's a big, fit, six four, six five point guard that's athletic. I mean, you don't have a lot of those in the rise the league. And oh, by the way, everyone thought he couldn't shoot. He's shooting thirty five percent from three. Like, the, yeah, the, to for <laughs> the record, to to the original point, he is probably a high major player or could play at a high a higher level if he really wanted to, but he's going to stay at NKU and everything's going to be great. I'm going to keep telling myself that. Uh, no, no, Sam Vincent will not be signing a musketeer report NIL, uh, but the skinny podcast needs some, needs some marketing. Maybe we could get him on the skinny podcast deal and uh, get him some merch or something. I'm sure he'd be really enticed to stay if we did that. Um, Bob Meyer wants to know, Will Captain Xavier get banned before the final four? Uh, but what banned from Twitter and from Twitter. Well, oh, he's Again? already done that. Yeah, he's, he's already, already done, done that. that. One,
0: Bob. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> he's got experience. If anything, throw it on the resume. Yeah. I hope
1: we're not talking about the, uh, the band from the arena or anything. I don't think he's acting up in that manner. He's usually just a maniac on social media from what I understand.
0: So. Yeah. He's a takes machine. Yeah.
1: Um, We do have a question from the message board here that we can get to. Uh, I can't pop it up on the screen, but Brian asked, any final thoughts on the 2022 recruiting class now that they have three commits? How would you rank Ward, Craft, and Claude in terms of potential immediate playing time next season and in terms of biggest long-term impact? Uh, Well, first of all, I think it's a a really nice class. I mean, one of the higher-ranked classes that Xavier's ever going to have and three guys that all look to be impact players and potentially could impact the team immediately in all three cases if we're trying to rank them who has the best chance of playing for xavier early on that's going to be cam craft in my opinion i think he's the most uh well-rounded i shouldn't say well-rounded he's the most polished of the bunch is what i would say offensively he's just a bucket getter he can shoot the lights out he's a high iq player he knows how to make plays for his teammates but let's be very clear he's pretty singularly focused on scoring for the most part i mean he is he is a high-level bucket getter. He's, he's got a really uncanny knack for hitting tough shots, too. I mean, things with guys all over him, buzzer beaters, falling away, NBA, beyond NBA, distance threes. He's done all of that stuff and, and puts on a fun show for you. So Cam Craft, I think, is going to be a really good player at Xavier, and I think he's the one that's ready to contribute the most immediately. Uh, in terms of biggest long-term impact, again, I think if we're talking about at Xavier, Cam Craft probably has as good of a chance as any of them to be that guy. But if we're talking about highest ceiling overall and who has the best pro potential, it's probably Tyrell Ward because out of the three of them, he's got the best combination of length, size, athleticism, upside, while also being fairly skilled already. He can shoot the three pretty well. He can score and he can defend. So uh, Tyrell Ward is a guy that it, they're going to have to polish him up a little bit. He needs some work definitely to get to where he's, he's going to be or where he could be potentially. But I think long-term he has the biggest upside, but Desmond Claude isn't too far off. I mean, he's a six, four, six, five point guard that isn't like a freak in terms of his explosiveness athletically, but he is a good athlete. He's smooth. He gets into the lane constantly. He makes plays for his teammates. He can score on his own around the basket. He's a good finisher. He just makes simple plays. That's one of the things I really liked about watching him. He's not a guy who tries to do too much or tries to over-dribble or tries to split through the double team or uh, do something that's flashy or fancy. He just makes the right play and the simple play more often than not. I think he's he's a really good player to be running your offense. Um, Other than that, I don't think we have – any more questions to get to? I think that was most of it. So if uh, if we missed you, ask me on the message board. I'll get to it. Or we can uh, talk about it next week on another show. But, hey, I appreciate y'all, you guys. I, I saw at one point we had like uh, 40-something people on here live watching. There's over 30 people still on here watching right now that somehow made it to the end of this thing with us. So <laughs> um, I really appreciate you guys doing this with us. And, Paul, great work as always. Bengals, Rick? Bengals? What do you got? I mean, I – I feel pretty good about that. I don't know how you feel. That's it's, it's really hard, but I said this on the skinny podcast last night. I don't want to be overly dramatic about it. Like we don't play, we're not in the organization or anything, but it really is kind of hard to find the words for like how this feels to know that your favorite team, the one you've been watching your entire life that always sucked. That was always the laughingstock (laughs) is going to play in the Super Bowl next week or two weeks from now, I should say that's, that's pretty unreal. I, I really don't know what else to say about that other than it's it's a really good feeling.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I it's hard to I, I was reading last night all of the early picks projections, all that, and everybody kept saying I've picked against the Bengals every week, not this time. i picked against the Bengals every week, not doing it again. Like it's all it's almost like there's an intangible there that just even like yesterday, as soon as they got that stop going into halftime. To me, I thought, all right, I I don't want to say, I thought they were for sure going to win the game, but when they didn't score going into halftime. I thought, all right, they're, they they got a chance to get this done. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, that was the turning point for me too, right? At halftime when Kansas City didn't score and Kansas City making that decision to run that play and not throw it in the end zone. I mean, just a total mental error right there. And then you have the Mahomes throw late where he just throws up for grabs and to bracket coverage to Tyreek Hill. It's like, I I thought Kansas city did some things in this game that really gave it away to some extent. And, and the Bengals were awesome too, but it was, it was nice to be on the other, the receiving end of some gifts in a high leverage moment like that for the Bengals.
0: That last play in the second quarter was made my heart stop because watching Tyreek Hill come out in the flat and nobody, no defender was in the screen. And then Eli Apple just came out of nowhere to make the tackle. But when he caught the ball, there, there was nobody in the camera shot. I thought I was like, "Oh my, he's just going to walk in." And then Eli came flying up out of nowhere. So yeah, I, the the line moved in the Rams' favor last night. So uh, you know, we'll see. I guess that says a little bit of something. Where that just means more right. money
1: for us when we hit the money line, like we did this past That's,
0: week. That's that is exactly right, Rick. Well. Uh, thanks everybody for listening and uh, if you're listening you know now thanks to everybody that's tuned in this whole time and uh, we'll see you again next week appreciate it